Hi, everybody. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Kyle. I am a member here at Doxology, and I'll be doing the scripture reading today, uh, which is going to be 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, verses 6 through 14. So I invite you to turn your Bibles there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we do have Bibles out in the foyer for you. Uh, that's our gift to you, so if you do take one, please keep it. Um, you can also uh, use your phone, of course, or if you're at home, uh, pull it up on your computer. Again, it's 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6, 6 through 14. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is God's word. It's good to see you guys. Uh, so we are in the final passage of First Peter. I hope you guys have enjoyed this as much as I have. I've never done a formal study on the book. It's been personally very edifying for me. I hope it has been for you guys as well. And perfect timing because next Sunday we're going to look at you know a little bit of the life of Peter and how he be- became formed to be the man who wrote this letter. I'd like to see because that was because of my um, I'd like to say it was because of my superlative planning. Uh, but really, it was. It, that snow day like made it go right up until Easter, so I was very grateful for God's provision there. So, uh, and this, this is a wonderful passage, and uh, to properly appreciate it, you have to understand that at this point, Peter is an old man, uh, probably going to die soon. And so, he's an old man, and while he certainly didn't start his race well, you know, we know he failed big time, he finished well. Uh, and he ran really hard until he did finish well. And so what he's doing here in this final section is he's encouraging a lot of younger churches on how to run the race well and finish the race well in the Christian life. And so that's why there, you know, there's this been, been this repeated refrain throughout the letter to live in a way that only makes sense if Christ has actually risen from the dead. And so as you think about what does it mean to run a race well... Uh, it means two things. So first it means you have to run hard. You can't just coast along the Christian life. So that's why a lot of these things in the letter that he's been saying are really hard to do. So first you can't coast. You have to run hard. Otherwise you're not actually racing, right? You're going to lose. But second, to run a race well, you have to finish. You actually have to finish the race. And here's where it gets a little bit more sobering. So uh, one of my friends, when he was in seminary, an old faithful pastor uh, came to encourage the seminarians, and the repeated refrain throughout this guy's talk to seminary students was, so many begin, so few finish. So many begin, so few finish. And I think a lot of you, even though most of us here, if not all of us, are under 50, you can attest to that. So I went to a Christian school through fifth grade, And there were 25 people in the class who, you know, at the time, you know, they're reading the Bibles, following Jesus. They would have said they love Jesus. But as of today, roughly 15 or so of those 25 are no longer walking with Jesus. 
Um, and even then, you know, another five or so are, are just merely coasting. I was just talking with uh, one of our members a week ago who went to Bible college, and they were saying how a lot of their classmates are no longer walking with Jesus. We've known a lot of famous pastors, even over the past two years, who've made public declarations uh, that they're no longer following Jesus. And so uh, I don't want to cast doubt in you, and neither does Peter, but the point is, if you don't have a sobriety about you, that, is, that it's actually not beyond your capability to reject Jesus and apostatize later in life, uh, or to just kind of coast, and then you get to the end of your life and you realize, like, oh my gosh, I've wasted it. Um, you're in a very dangerous place if you don't think that's you. And so here at the end, uh, Peter says, like, this is what's key to make sure you run the, way, you run the race well and finish well. And so this is a, it's a beautiful passage. It would make a great like life passage to know. Uh, so let's just, just hear it again. Okay, so humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that, that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to, de- to devour Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. These are the words of an old, wizened Peter to a young group of Christians, and it's also the words of Jesus to us today on how to run the race well and actually finish well. And so uh, this is less of a formula he gives us. I wish it was formulaic, uh, but it's more principles that he gives here at the end. So he says, rest humbly, resist firmly, and hope confidently. Rest humbly, resist firmly, hope confidently. Just moving from start to finish in this passage. So first, rest humbly. Verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So under the mighty hand of God, this is a direct reference to God's mighty hand who led the Israelites out of Egypt. So what Peter is saying is the same God who broke the Israelites out of the most powerful nation in the world and parted the Red Seas is the same God who cares for you. And so humble yourselves, i.e. humbly accept whatever circumstances are in your life right now, knowing that he's the mighty God who's watching over you. And key to this, to this humble acceptance of wherever you are in life, is this phrase, at the proper time, he may exalt you. So everything about, you know, I mean, humans have always struggled with impatience, but I think we have it worse than any other culture just because of everything in our society that encourages us to be more impatient. So just the other week, I had to take a long drive down to North Carolina, and I realized that I didn't have a car charger for my phone, and it was the night before I had to leave. And so at 10 p.m., I went on Amazon and found, like, you know, I don't have an iPhone. You guys make fun of me for that. So I had to find, a, like, a turbocharger for my specific phone I ordered it 10 p.m. It arrived at my house by 4 in the morning. I don't know where it came from or what witchcraft like Amazon did, but it was on my doorstep when I, like, I walked outside at 6 a.m. That's 
amazing. That's incredible. But the problem is we don't see like quick things happening like that as amazing anymore. Now we just expect it, right? So when we want something, we say, I want it now. And so when it comes to God, right, this is what we do. Well, I want a great job now. I want this relationship now. I want futility. I want futility, free productivity now. I want this leisurely existence now. But what Peter says is, in, in a very caring way, he's saying, at the proper time, God will exalt you. So if you can remember being a kid, and if you had something like a pizza and movie night on Fridays, I feel like a lot of families did this. But if you remember being a kid, you know, starting at 1 p.m., you go, Mom, Mom, Mommy, yes, dear, are we going to watch the movie now? No. 20 minutes later, Mom, 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 Mommy, what? (laughs) Are we going to watch the movie now? No. Until finally, as your parents grow and mature, they learn to set expectations. And so what they say is, okay, when that, when the little hand reaches the seven and the big hand reaches the 12, then we're going to get order the pizza and watch the movie. So then you're eagerly watching the hand. So now your, your, your expectations are properly set. And what's, what's your parents saying? At the proper time, we're going to eat the pizza and watch the movie. Because if we get in the habit of doing that at 1 p.m. in the afternoons, that's not going to make you an adult that a lot of other people like and enjoy being around. And, and Peter's saying the same thing. At the proper time, God will exalt you. And God is never late. So at the proper time... Jesus was born in a manger. At the proper time, he suffered once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. At the proper time, the stone was rolled away, and Jesus rose again and ascended. And at the proper time, that person in your life told you the good news about Jesus, and he awakened your heart to belief. And at the proper time, that friend came along in your life to encourage you when you needed it most. God always does things in accordance to his time, and it's perfect. And so, how does this relate to running the race well? Well, when things don't happen according to your timeline, which often is not in accordance with God's timeline, you start to get bitter. You start to develop, you know, a coolness toward God. Because what? You're assuming that I want it now. And so Peter's saying, no, remember, at the proper time, God will exalt you. And here he's specifically referring to at the end of all things when Christ renews creation, and you will have Everything. You love even the things you didn't even know you wanted. Okay, so that's at, that's at the proper time. Number two, what does it look like to rest humbly so you don't grow bitter or anxious? He says, verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him <clears throat> because he cares for you. Okay, so th- this is interesting. And this was shocking and a bit annoying to me this past week. So the train of thought is this. Humble yourselves, how? By, verse 7, casting your anxieties on him. So the way you humble yourself before God is casting your anxieties upon him. So put the opposite way. What he's saying is, if you are living in worry, just like a repeated refrain of worry and anxiety, that is a sign of arrogance and pride. Right? And so if you want an indicator of um, where are you boastful in life, where do you think you know more than God, look at the things that you're anxious about. Look at the things that you worry about over and over. Why? Because worry is a sure indicator of overconfidence in your own opinion and in your own abilities. Right? Because you assume, oh, no, it needs to be going this way, but it's not. So either God doesn't know what he's doing or he doesn't care. 
Because this doesn't mean, of course, there's going to be like circumstances that hit you that make you anxious. But the key is, is anxiety and worry just kind of a, a recurring base note in your life? You know, it's just always on the periphery. You're worried as you go to sleep. You're worried as you're doing other things. Or do you actually take them to God? Because if you don't, it's a, it's a sign of arrogance. So what does he say to do? He says, cast your anxieties on him. So this word cast is the same word used in Luke 19 when the disciples cast or threw their cloaks on the donkey, it's Palm Sunday, as Jesus was running, as Jesus was riding into Jerusalem. So what, when you cast something, you're no longer holding it. You're no longer encumbered by it. Or think of a modern example, you know, throwing a bowling ball. It's out of your hands and you can go like this, you know, to try to will it to go toward the pins, but you're no longer weighed down by it. So what Peter's saying is, you can actually cast your anxieties on God and let him handle it, i.e., you can pray and let God do the worrying for you. Isn't that great? And the key is because he cares for you. You humble yourself by casting your anxiety, just throw your anxieties on God because he cares. And so ask yourself, like deep within you, is there the, just the, the, the lived experience of viewing God more as an, more as an employer you know, so he's in, a, he's in authority over you. So, you, you know, you have obligations to him. So you do things for him. You know, you do all the things, you know, the practices of the Christian life. And then in return, what, just like an employer, he gives you things. So he, he pays you. He makes sure you're secure. He gives you eternal life. He gives you security. Okay, but with an employer, when you're actually weighed down by something that's giving you anxiety, do you typically take that to your employer? No, not often. Sometimes you may get fired because then they might see you as, you know, weak or, or whatever, or you've just made the relationship too personal. But with God, he, he actually cares. He's not just your king and creator. He's your father. Just a very recent time where I experienced this, so one of my teachers in seminary, uh, so he's in authority over me. And something happened last year. It's one of the hardest things I've ever gone through. It involved a, a really close relationship that I have. And I... I couldn't sleep at night. I was having a hard time eating. I wasn't casting my anxieties on God. And finally, I just, I, I had to reach out to someone outside of my normal circles. And so I, I reached out to this guy. And basically all I could say in my email was like, I just need a friend. Like, can you, like, I know you're busy. He's a, he's a well sought after speaker. He's well known in the academic and the ministry world. Um, does, you know, he's got like three big hats that he wears. And he responded immediately and just said, when are you free? And first we met on Zoom. And then he took me out to lunch uh, at an outdoor restaurant a week later, and he just, he just heard me, and he let me, he literally just let me unload everything, and I just got to put my anxieties and my worries on him. Uh, yeah, he gave wise counsel, but ultimately he wasn't there to give me answers. Why? Because he, he cares. He's not just an authority in my life, but he actually cares for me. And that made all the difference in the world, and how much more so your Heavenly Father and so when anxiety has come, what Peter's telling you is rather than, you know, just walking around trying to solve it yourself or micromanaging or, you know, some people go the other way, you just freeze because you don't want to act because you might mess something up. Actually, go to God and cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So key to running the race well, rest humbly. Amazing. Number two, resist firmly. So here we're in verse eight. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So when it comes to the devil, we this is talked about often, uh, but we need to remember it. 
Often people are either superstitious or substitious when it comes to the devil. So you're either superstitious where everything is the devil. The devil's everywhere. And so if you can't connect your printer to your computer, the devil is doing something. Now, I do think demons do inherit most printers. Just That's a, that's a personal opinion. That's not doxology's official opinion. But, you know, something that's like the devil's everywhere. But, and here's where we err in the West, is we're substitious. Where we, actually, we don't give the devil enough credit. Oddly enough, we think about God all the time, who's a supernatural being, but not the devil. And Jesus talks about the devil all the time. And so what Peter's reminding us here is there is a real, personal, supernatural being who, if you follow Jesus, hates you and will do everything he can to destroy your faith. So this is why it says be sober-minded about this. And how does he do it? And even just looking at this context, how the devil tries to shipwreck our faith isn't often by, you know, jumping out of a closet and scaring us. Quite frankly, that'd be too, too obvious. So he's much more cunning than that. And so uh, there are a few ways he does it, even just looking within the context of Peter. So notice the image of roaring lion. So if you're in a national park and all of a sudden a lion kind of comes out of the shrubbery and he roars at you, your blood's going to turn cold in what? In fear. Right? So when a lion roars at you, you're afraid. And Peter, earlier in chapter 3, when he's talking about giving a hope for the reason you have within you, what does he say? He says, uh, where did you go, Peter? Um, have no fear of them. Yes, for, verse 14. Have no fear of them, like the people who are mocking you and belittling you for your faith. And so one of the ways the devil comes after you to shipwreck your faith, um, or just to, to win, is to, when you're in a group of people or even in front of a person where if you do something or say something that relates to you following Jesus, and you know there is going to be a real social cost if you do that, and so you sheepishly just don't say anything or you don't change your behavior, there is more than meets the eye going on there. In fact, that is, that is a win for the devil, right, in keeping other people from hearing the good news about Jesus. So we should be very, very aware of, you know, we're in those situations. This isn't just a, like, Oh, I'll talk about it later. I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed. There is a real personal supernatural force at work in these types of environments. How else does the, does the devil come after you? Notice verse 7. Remember, God cares for you. I think the fundamental lie of the devil is God doesn't care. If you go back to Genesis 3, when he, first tempt, when he tempted the first human, Eve, ultimately his victory wasn't getting her to get the fruit. It was he put the lie in her that God can't be trusted. He doesn't care about your joy. You know, he says, you know, God knows you'll be like him, so take the fruit. And that lie that God doesn't care has been, I mean, brilliantly injected into the bloodstream of the entire human race. You know, so think about the times, especially like if you pray really hard for something, you want so bad, and then it doesn't happen. What's often the first thought that comes in your mind? God, you can't care. Because if you cared, you would have done this. So Peter said, remember God's faithfulness, remember God's promises. And when, when that thought comes in, which is pretty much under every doubt we have, God doesn't care, that very well maybe, sometimes it's your own sin, sometimes it's our own you know, finitude, but it can often be the devil. And then number three, how does the devil come after us to, to shipwreck our faith? Well, notice the train of thought. He says, humble yourselves, 
casting your anxieties upon. And then he jumps to the devil. Right? So humble yourselves, now be sober-minded and resist the devil. And it's okay, is Peter in his old age gone senile and he's just jumping around from topic to topic? Or should we give Peter the benefit of the doubt as an inspired writer of scripture and say, you know, there's actually a logical train of thought here. And what Peter's getting at is how the devil comes after us is often through just the very ordinary means of going after our footholds. So you think about when he tempted Jesus in Matthew 4, did he challenge Jesus to a cage match? You know, it's like to like physically wrestle him. No. What did he tempt Jesus with? He says, you know, kneel down before me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to lay down your life for others. You know, take it for yourself. Take the way of pride and self-assertion. He tempted Jesus to enter into a kingdom of self-taking of rather than self-giving. And so that's why Peter combines why he goes from humble yourselves to resist the devil. Because in whatever footholds are in your life, be it pride, worry, envy, gossip, uh, self-obsession, you know, with how you look, how you're perceived, is, is very much how, how Satan goes after you. And uh, there was this quote by a guy who wrote a book on spiritual warfare. His name is William Gurnall. And this is what he said. When men hear a noise at night, they cry, the devil, the devil, and they run for their life. Yet, they carry the devil around in their very hearts all day. For if you have a proud spirit, or if you have anxiety, you are under his power. My friends, why don't you run from your pride, or from your resentments and grudges, yelling, the devil, the devil. And so friends, just think about, you know, when when pride creeps in, when you really begin to think you are better than someone in some way, when you are envying gifts, or a, a position someone else has, that you don't have, um, when you are nursing resentment, there's more going on there than you think, and you are actually opening yourself up to spiritual powers. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, we don't wage against flesh and blood, but against the powers and authorities over this present darkness. But, verse 9, we can resist him, right? Verse 9, resist him, firming your faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So, because we do have the far greater lion, the lion of Judah, in us and with us, we actually can resist the devil. And then he says, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So, can give you so, so much assurance when you know someone else is suffering along with you. So, even if you think about if some of you had a challenging undergrad degree or a grad degree, and there are times where you're studying when so many of your other friends and other majors are out partying or having fun, or you're up till three in the morning studying or just typing away, you know, you're, or you're in, if you're a science major, an architect, an architecture major, you're just in the lab, you're in the shop all day. But you, when you know that you have everyone else in your degree suffering alongside you, and then you're going to get to rejoice at the end of it to get, like there is a comfort and hope there that comes when you know other people are suffering. And so that's what Paul said, that, that's what Peter's saying here. No, as you are suffering, as you are being tempted, all throughout the world, other believers who look very different than you, and who come from all kinds of different backgrounds, are experiencing the same kind of temptations and same kinds of suffering that you do today. And because you have Christ, you can actually resist the devil. So first, there's a humble rest, casting your anxieties upon God, but then there's a very active resistance component by resisting the devil. And then finally, number three, a key to running and finishing the race well is hope confidently. Hope confidently. And this is the most important part about this, this entire section, and maybe in the whole letter. Verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, 
will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. If you meditate on that verse for longer than five seconds, it's overwhelming. It's so good. It should take your breath away. You don't even know. I was, even just like last night, as I was finishing this up, I just sat in my computer for an hour trying to figure out like how to talk about this without botching it because anything I say, I feel like just makes it worse because it's such a beautiful promise. But it's such a fitting way to end the letter because all throughout the letter, Peter has been giving us an urge over and over to live with a position of heart in a way of life that does not make sense unless this promise is true. When he calls you to live in such a way that you will be maligned and misunderstood, you, you may lose your job, you may lose friends, if you, actually, if you actually follow Jesus in a culture like ours. When you, when you are reviled and in return you bless. When you pursue other people in your church to love them earnestly instead of keeping time to yours. You can't live like that if you're actually trying to live that way unless this verse is true. There's no way. And even more so, this is the verse that you need and the promise you need when all other lights go out. Okay, when somebody super close to you betrays you. When someone you love deeply gets taken away from this world way before you or you ever thought they would be. If something happens to your child, if you fail Jesus, if this promise isn't true, at best, you'll coast. And often, more often, you will just reject Jesus, as impossible as that sounds. But it is true. And when Peter says, so after you've suffered a little while, that means in comparison to glory, in comparison to eternity, the God of all grace will himself? What? God himself? (laughs) Will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So what this means is, like, when you get to heaven, it's not just, it's not going to be this, you know, you're all, like, around the, the table eating and drinking, although we will. And, you know, and we're singing, and God's just up there, removed from us. But the triune God himself, in a personal way, will restore you and establish you. And I can only gesture at what that will feel like. But here's what I know it'll feel like. All pain, all pain will be replaced with, pre- with pleasure. All loneliness will be replaced with belonging. All worry will be replaced with music and dancing. All of your quiet, unnoticed acts of faithfulness that you did for Jesus and maybe only one other person or no one saw will be replaced with global fame And when God himself establishes you, you will be the most you. (laughs) Out with all the bad and all the best stuff about you will be like going from where you are now as as a tulip bulb to the full tulip, but times infinity. 
You'll be the most you. And I can't wait to see each of you as the most you, especially Luke. As, <laughs> I can't wait to see all of you, sorry. As the, like, will that be a wonderful day? And I imagine for Peter, as he was, I think this was the point, probably in the letter, where Peter started weeping as he wrote this, or spoke it to his scribe, because Peter, and not just because, you know, Peter suffered a lot, not just because Peter couldn't wait for this day to happen, but Peter could remember with such sharp clarity this gift that was so wondrous and free for Peter was so costly and painful for Jesus to give. Because Jesus, Peter's best friend, when Peter was denying Jesus, I don't even know the guy, and less than a hundred yards away, what was happening to Jesus? He was suffering once, the, un- the righteous, for the unrighteous, so that he could bring Peter to God. And people like you and me who are like Peter. So that this can be true. Because this is why Peter di- this is why Jesus died. Why Christ suffered so that he could bring us to God. Christ died and rose so that verse 10 can and will happen. So as sure as Christ died and rose, this is why he did it, to bring us. And so if you don't want this, then you don't want, why, then you don't want what Jesus died for. But yet now as you gaze at the cross, I hope it, it takes on a whole new beauty on what Jesus was doing there. And so hear Peter's words as he is urging you, at the end, because for Peter, he went from a coward who denied Christ to a teenage girl to a man in Acts 2 who preached to 3,000 people. And went on to establish the most ethically, ethnically and socioeconomically diverse movement in world history. And from what we know from history, uh, he was crucified upside down. Dying up until his final breath for his savior that he once denied. Because he knew this was true. And so as you think about running the race well and finishing well, just remember Peter's words throughout this letter. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. How do you know? Because verse 7, because he cares for you. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so, so, so good. And I pray for every single person in here, Lord, um, including me, that you will help us to run the race well and to finish well um, so that none of us fall away, uh, but we all get to rejoice with each other in glory. 
And as new people come to our church and as we make new disciples outside these walls, uh, may they get to share in this wonderful promise at the end. Uh, Stamp verse 10 into our hearts, Lord. Um, We're so grateful for you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.